Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. Tonight we kick off a brand new Open House series and it will be like no other series we've brought you before. It promises to deliver a rich and diverse range of often remarkable stories of people coming to Christian faith. John Mulder is the author of 25 books. He's a Presbyterian minister and former president and professor of historical theology at Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary in the US. His latest book is Finding God, a Treasury of conversion stories. The book covers about 2,000 years of history, telling the compelling conversion stories of 60 people from the Apostle Paul and the Emperor Constantine to John Wesley, Albert Schweitzer, C.S. Lewis, Mother Teresa and Bono from U2. This series will be a feast of wonderful stories, great encouragement and a chance to have our minds and our faith stretched just a bit. John Mulder, welcome to Open House. Thank you, Lee. It's good to be with you. Very much look forward to it, John. John, of all the books you've written, you say this is your favorite. It really is. And it's in part because of the tremendous appeal of the people that are uh, covered in the book, but also because I think it cuts right straight through to the heart of Christianity, and that's the experience of God's presence and God's grace and God's love in people's lives, and the combination of great stories and then the centrality of the theme of conversion uh, really made the book a joy to put together. And a joy to read. This may seem a simple question, but I think it's an important one to clarify right at the start. How do you define conversion? What does that involve, John? Well, it might be helpful to say why I did the book, (laughs) and that is that Initially, I had confronted a group of students who were strong evangelical students with a very definite experience in their lives, very powerful, emotional, dateable experience of God's grace. And I thought to myself, you know, it would be very helpful for them to see the variety of ways in which people came to a knowledge of God and of God's love and Jesus Christ. So it was an attempt to demonstrate the diversity. As time went on, however, I began to see that an equally important reason for doing this book was to demonstrate the importance of conversion, particularly at a time in some churches' lives where people are not so sure about conversion and really uh, may be a little bit suspicious and distrustful of it. And so it was both the diversity and the centrality of conversion that really drove me to do the book. Now, in terms of defining it, it really revolves around some very basic issues that are right smack in the Bible itself. The word means to turn around, and every one of these stories is a story about a person who turns, and who sometimes turns very emotionally, sometimes very intellectually, sometimes ethically, but the turn is critical, moving away from a previous pattern of life to a new pattern of life. The word isn't used very often in the Bible, and that's kind of interesting in itself. Instead, you get words and images that capture the root meaning. 
of conversion, namely to turn. Uh, you can read of repentance, regeneration, being born again. But behind it all is the concept or the experience of change, which is probably the most terrifying and yet liberating experience in all of human life. As I said, there's such a rich range of stories, John, but also such a diverse range of conversion experiences. What would you say you have learned about the way God brings people to faith in the way he works in the world? Well, in all of these stories, and I'm imposing something on them that is really a kind of a construct or a template that you can put on a whole variety of experiences that are sometimes emotional, sometimes intellectual, sometimes merely aesthetic, and sometimes they're moral turnings. But there are some pretty clear stages, it seems to me. One of them at the very beginning is that the individual confronts God or confronts a reality beyond themselves. The second stage is that they resist. There's a pushing against the reality that seems to be impinging on their lives. This uh, conversion doesn't come easily. It doesn't come quickly. And then there's a surrender of some kind, a giving in, a loss of oneself and becoming another self, as uh, the Apostle Paul puts it in his writings. And following that, there's an experience of joy. Augustine felt it. Uh, Ethel Waters felt it. So many of the accounts talk about the joy that comes as a result of the surrender. And then comes a stage of gratitude, of deep and profound thankfulness to God for having broken through the old self and creating a new one. And finally, there's the dimension of new life and a new mission and a new purpose in life. Uh, conversion is never something that begins and ends with the surrender and joy, but it's always translated into some kind of constructive new life that the individual leads in behalf of others. And for the benefit of the world in so many cases. Absolutely. Yes. The people we have chosen for this book are all people who left an incredibly deep and uh, lasting mark the world in which they lived. There's one other piece to this that I'd like to add as a footnote to all these stages. In so many of the accounts, they're often on the sidelines or off stage. They don't get any credit, usually, in the in narrative of somebody's conversion. But there's always a significant person who brings the person to a new way of looking at life and a new relationship with God. It, it, it's captured, really, in the story of Paul's conversion in Acts 9, where he talks about this fellow Ananias who came to his house in Damascus. We know absolutely nothing about Ananias other than in Acts 9. He appears, he disappears, he, there's never been any mention of him before and never again. 
But Ananias comes to Paul's house, or the house where he was staying, lays his hands on him, and that's when the scales fall from Paul's eyes, and he recognizes God's grace in Jesus Christ. And it's so interesting in Acts 9 that when Ananias comes to Paul, he says, Brother Paul. Now, that in itself is an absolutely astonishing greeting, given the fact that Paul is the primary persecutor of the early Christians. But he says, Brother Paul. And a friend of mine who knows the French text of the New Testament says that in the French text it's mon frère Paul, my brother Paul, which is an amazing revelation of how God uses other people to bring them to life of faith and a life of uh, service. It's almost, in a sense, a repeat of the Incarnation. People don't come to God in isolation. They come to God through other people. It's a very important point to make. John, each week we're going to be exploring the lives and conversions to Christian faith of four people. And each night these stories will cover hundreds, sometimes thousands of years, many of them very well known, some not so, but still with very powerful stories. Let's kick off with the famous John Wesley, perhaps first, I think by setting a bit of an historical context for his life, John. Wesley was born in 1703, died in 1791, so he lived virtually the entire 18th century. And he is responsible, of course, for the birth of Methodism, which has become one of the most prominent and powerful expressions of Protestantism in the modern world. He actually grew up in a minister's house, a minister's home. His father was, by all accounts, a kind of prickly man, not given to much warmth. But his mother, Susanna, was one of the most remarkable women in the history of Christianity. She had many children, and she devoted her life to educating them, and had a practice of spending an hour each evening with each of the children. So Wesley didn't exactly grow up as a non-churchman by any means. He was very much a part of the church, and yet he struggled with his faith. He didn't know what it meant inside of his heart, as he put it, to really know exactly what God's will was for him, and he met a Moravian by the name of Peter Bowler when he was in London, confessed to Bowler that he really didn't know what he was supposed to be preaching. And Bowler gave him this wonderful piece of advice. He said, preach faith till you have it, and then because you have it, you will preach faith. (laughs) It almost seems circular. Wesley continued to struggle, and then on this famous night when he was reading with a group of others Martin Luther's commentary on Romans, he felt his heart strangely warmed. And in his account of his conversion, What's fascinating is both this powerful sense of truth of Christianity entering his heart, 
that's clearly evident. But if you read on a little bit farther, you'll notice that Wesley says that his doubts came charging back. And he said, I must go on and tread my doubts under my feet. And he literally did that. He uh, traveled during his ministry 250,000 miles, preaching 40 to 50,000 sermons. He literally uh, eliminated doubt from his life by uh, moving around yeah, and preaching. And just moving it. around and preaching. Yes. So that's John Wesley. Therese of yes. Lisieux, a French woman who lost her mother as a young girl. Tell us her story, John. Yes, this was a story about a woman who has become a great saint within the Catholic tradition. Lost her mother when she was a very young girl, and she then spent about nine or ten years that she called the agony of her life, in which she was trying somehow to find God's assurance and presence in her life. And during that time, she, as was typical for 19th century Catholicism, particularly of the French and Italian tradition, she became very concerned about her sinfulness and focused especially on God's gift of salvation through Christ's blood. Blood plays a huge role in her piety and in her salvation. And that probably strikes most modern people as a bit strange or even a little bit obnoxious, but uh, it does capture, I think, the uh, fundamental element of the Christian message that God comes to us in human form, and that humanness is both the flesh and the blood of Jesus Christ, that is broken and shed for us and for our salvation. She became the patron saint of Catholic missionaries uh, during the 19th and 20th century because of her intense devotion. Almost immediately upon her death, people in the Catholic tradition began to talk of her sainthood, and she was uh, canonized very early only about 25 years after her death. So that's Therese of Lisieux. Sun Chu Kil is an important story, John, for an important nation in the modern history of the Christian story. Yes, uh, Sun Chu Kil is Korean, born uh, in the mid-19th century and living until the first third or so of the 20th century. He was born into a family that uh, essentially practiced Taoism, and that became the uh, religion of his youth and early adulthood. He then came in contact with uh, Samuel Moffat, the Presbyterian missionary, and found the Christian message to be interesting, but not particularly compelling. Then, after a series of crises, both personal and really national, the triumph of the Japanese over the Koreans and the seizure of Korea by Japan, he began to struggle with his own faith and the destiny of his people, the Korean people. 
And out of that came a conversion to Christianity that was very intense, sort of mirrored his own Taoist experience of hearing a gun and a flute. And it was the gun and the flute of Taoist experience in his life that came back to him again when he had an experience of God's grace in Jesus Christ. He became the leader of Korean Presbyterianism, one of the first graduates of the Presbyterian Seminary in Korea. Throughout his ministry, blended some key elements of Taoism with Christianity so that it became a distinctively Korean Christianity, not simply the Christianity of Western Christians who were missionaries in Japan. Uh, For example, the Taoist practice of rising with dawn at the dawn and praying, this was incorporated by Kiel into the experience of the Korean church. And one of the most distinctive characteristics now of Korean Christianity is this practice of morning prayer, of getting up with the dawn, praying to God for an extended period of time. I know that when I was at uh, Louisville Seminary, we had Korean students, and at their request, we had to give them keys to the chapel so that they could go and pray in the chapel each morning at 4, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, just as they had learned to do in their native Korea. Then, toward the end of his life, he was imprisoned from 1919 to 1921, and during that time, he read the book of Revelation 800 times. And the remainder of his ministry was really an extended preaching or an extended sermon over and over again about the second coming of Christ. This might have been viewed or might be viewed today as an otherworldly attempt to deal with the oppression brought by Japan in Korean society. But like the slaves of the South, this notion of a kingdom of God that would triumph in the face of oppression and suffering gave great strength to the Korean church so that when the Japanese rule was finally lifted, the Korean church emerged with great strength and vitality. It's a hugely significant story in such an important nation for Christian faith, as I said. So that's Sun Chut Kill. Finally, to Martin Luther King Jr., the famed civil rights leader, assassinated at the age of 39, John. Martin Luther King was born into a Christian home. Uh, he said on several occasions that there really was no choice about being religious. He said, I grew up in the church. My father is a preacher, my grandfather was a preacher, my great-grandfather was a preacher, my only brother is a preacher, my daddy's brother is a preacher, so I didn't have much choice. He was born to be a preacher, and what a preacher he was. was. His story is really the story of a kind of moral conversion. Uh, He was born and raised in his father's church in Atlanta, Interestingly, uh, he was 
originally named Michael. His father was named Michael, but after a trip to Germany where they encountered the birthplace of Martin Luther, his father changed his name to Martin and changed his son's name to Martin. So the Martin Luther King that we know of from history originally began his life as Michael King. That transformation of his name matches the kind of transformation that took place in his life. He grew up in the church. It was a largely conservative, black, Baptist environment. But during college at, uh, in Atlanta and then subsequently in seminary and graduate school, he moved to a much broader and deeper understanding of the Christian faith that really enabled him to deal with the reality of racism in the South in the mid-20th century. And the account in the book is less the story of a man who moves from no faith to faith, but the story of a man who moves from a faith to a broader understanding of faith and then begins to apply it to his times with such remarkable and revolutionary effect. He wrote, as a young man with most of my life ahead of me, I decided early to give my life to something eternal and absolute, not to these little gods that are here today and gone tomorrow, but to God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's exactly what he did, the story of a man who put away and challenged the little gods that both our nation and so many nations have tried to claim as the real God, and instead he pointed to the everlasting God who would not tolerate the kind of injustice that blacks were confronting both here and throughout the world. And the United States and many parts of the world were never the same again. They're great stories, and I look forward enormously in the coming weeks to exploring many more of them with you, John. John Mulder is the author of Finding God, A Treasury of Conversion Stories. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lee. And next week, John will take us through his own very powerful experience of where and how he found Christian faith. And we'll take you back nearly 2,000 years to the Emperor Constantine, then Blaise Pascal, Malcolm Muggeridge, and Claire Booth Luce. We hope you enjoyed this open house podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.